0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Babel: Translating the Middle East. I'm John Alterman, a Senior Vice President here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program. I'm joined here by two of my colleagues.
1: I'm Amber Adaridge, Associate Director of the Middle East Program at CSIS.
2: And I'm Will Todman, Associate Fellow also with the Middle East Program. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines
0: to discuss what's really happening in the Middle East and North Africa. We feature regional experts who can explain what's going on, provide context on pivotal developments, and highlight trends you may have missed. Each episode will have three parts. In our deep dive, I talk
2: with a regional expert to explore what's going on beneath the surface of critical issues. Then, the three of us discuss a recent development in the region that may not have got the attention it's deserved.
1: We close each episode with what we call a meze, a bite-sized story from the region that touches on an underreported trend. In this episode, John talks with Ambassador Bill Burns about the role of the United States in the Middle East. We'll have a quick chat about increasing tensions between Israel and Iran, then hear how some couples are opting for a new type of gold for their wedding dowries.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We're here with former Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns. He's the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the author of The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for its Renewal. Bill, welcome to Babel.
3: John, it's great to be with
0: you. As you think now, looking forward, where should the Middle East rank in American priorities? We're clearly committed to Asia. Mm -hmm. We have longstanding commitments to Europe which help us in Asia we have our own hemisphere. As we get more self-sufficiency and energy, how should we think about the Middle East in the broader scheme of things?
3: Well, I think the honest answer is that, you know, the Middle East ought not objectively to rank at the top of our geopolitical priorities in the way that for you know a number of decades it has whether it was through crises that were forced upon us or that we stumbled into the realities of a much higher level of energy dependence for the United States so for all those reasons it seems to me that we need to shift the terms of our engagement with the Middle East. Now, that's different than disengaging from the Middle East. I think it would be foolish to think that that's either possible or desirable. I mean, Gulf hydrocarbon still is important to the global economy, even if it's not as crucial to the U.S. economy as it was three or four decades ago. The danger of conflict in the Middle East spilling over you know, was made readily apparent and the refugee crisis that Europeans have grappled with since the civil war in Syria and lots of other unrest began across the Middle East and, you know, given a different kind of insecurity in Africa as well. So we don't, we don't have the luxury of neglecting the Middle East. But, you know, we also have to be careful about how we change the terms of our engagement and move away, it seems to me anyway, from what it became, after 9-11, an over-militarized approach with overemphasis, in my view, on the military tools at our disposal and sometimes treating diplomacy or even a focus on the gradual modernization of a lot of Arab societies and human rights issues as kind of afterthoughts as well. I do not mean to suggest that there's a, a neat or easy prescription for American strategy in the Middle East. The dysfunctions of that part of the world, I think, are going to continue for some time. I think we need to be more careful about how we balance our tools, how we try to connect our approach to short-term problems and crises against a long-range vision of that region. For example, it still seems to me that you know, you're not going to have any semblance of stability or a stable regional order in the Middle East unless Saudis and Iranians at some point don't trust one another. They're still going to be competitors and rivals, but begin to accept that there are certain basic rules of the road that are in both of their interests to play.
0: I mean, you push forward to 2011, another mm-hmm. really searing experience in, in your professional career and mine. Suddenly all these things that seemed certain weren't certain very much. And you have a very interesting passage where you talked about how the Arab border in early 2011 was still one that had the United States as its principal frame of reference. They were accustomed to America's centrality in their world, schizophrenic, in their simultaneous resentments and expectations of American influence. They continually exaggerated our ability to affect events and we did the same. As you think back of your career, not only in the Middle East but more broadly, how do we need to right size our ambitions? Hmm. How do we figure out if we're taking the right size bite too big, too small? how do we recalibrate if we decide we've gotten this wrong yeah it's a really
3: good question john and you and i have lived through this you know inside government and now outside government as well and there's no neat mathematical formula you know in terms of american strategy in the middle east but i think it does involve a kind of very careful balance between understanding those moments when american power can be implied you know in a very useful and effective way and the limits of our agency in a part of the world that suffers from not only local dysfunctions you know the gap identified you know almost 20 years ago now in the arab human development reports in opportunity whether it's educational women's rights economic opportunity as well. Locally, regional rivalries, unresolved regional conflicts and then the actions of a lot of external players who are trying to settle scores through some of those regional rivalries as well. So, you know, Middle East is always, uh, you know, land that where pessimists feel right at home because they rarely lack for either company or validation. Having said that, if you look at some specific examples you know when I worked as a relatively young diplomat for Secretary of State Baker in the George H W Bush administration this was a moment when american power and influence in the middle east was at its zenith cold war had ended soviet union was in the process of collapsing people were focused on american power and i remember the genuine willingness to take risks and seize the moment that you know led up to desert storm the expulsion of Saddam Hussein's Iraq from Kuwait and their occupation of Kuwait. But then the recognition on the part of President George H.W. Bush and Baker and Scowcroft and those around them that there were also limits to our agency. And so I remember Baker saying on the afternoon that President Bush decided not to pursue Iraqi forces who were then fleeing pell-mell out of Kuwait back toward Baghdad. Because I think they rightly concluded that that would break the coalition that we had put together because the purpose of that coalition was to expel the Iraqis from Kuwait, not to overthrow Saddam. It would have given us a really complicated inheritance on the day after Saddam was overthrown and you know his, his military was defeated in Iraq as well as in Kuwait.
0: Should the U.S. pull back from military associations with their governments that are interested in taking matters into their own hands? Should we pull back from engaging with their militaries?
3: No, I don't think it's so much pull back from engaging with their militaries, but I think we can be quite selective in expressing our concern, for example, about the war in Yemen. It just seems to me that one way of being direct about our concern about the need to wind that war down. Diplomatically and politically, you know, is the effort that across partisan lines on the Hill has recently been made in a limited way, suspend, you know, certain kinds of arms shipments which are directly connected to the prosecution of that conflict. So that's different than saying we should sort of cut off military engagement there. There are lots of practical reasons why that matters to us. And we do have an interest in the stability over the long term of those states, whether it's Egypt or Saudi Arabia.
0: President Sisi, at, at one point in his still rising political career, told me he was talking to a US Secretary of Defense and he said, he keeps asking me things I can't do and he knows I can't do and I keep asking him things I know he can't do. Does that pattern, is that just normal people should know where we are or are there ways we can say things that actually do push our allies and partners?
3: Oh, I think there are. I mean, again, I mean, we always have to be mindful of the limits of our agency. You know, there are, you know, different leaderships in the Middle East. If you go back, you know, to Hosni Mubarak's Egypt, you know, I remember the conversations President Obama would have with them. And then, you know, lesser officials like me would have with them. And, You know, his fundamental view is that we just didn't understand Egypt. We didn't understand the importance of his leadership and of, you know, a tough, disciplined approach to maintaining order in Egypt. We thought he was wrong. That he was too slow to react to the building pressures in Egypt for change and the resentment of corruption and the resentment of the reality that while, as you know, John, the Egyptian economy had grown at something like 7% a year for a decade before the revolution in 2011, that the benefits of that weren't widely shared. It was a tiny circle of people, some of them closely connected to the president, um, who were benefiting from that. He thought we were naive about what it takes uh, to maintain order in a complicated Arab society, and we thought that you know he was offering too little, too late to what were mounting pressures as well. So you're inevitably going to have those kind of complications. And we may both have been each right. Other. We may both have been right.
0: You've negotiated with Libyans. You've negotiated with Iranians. You got both of them to do pretty remarkable things you don't seem like a very menacing person, but Mm -hmm. you talk a lot about hard-nosed. I've often heard you talk about sort of providing people with different gates to walk through. Did that involve threats? Did that involve when you talked with Gaddafi, when you talked to the Iranians, did you also convey not only here's a positive pathway, but here's how things could get much, much worse for you.
3: Sure. Well, we had just posed an object lesson in Afghanistan um, with what the U.S. military and intelligence agency um, had accomplished there in overthrowing the Taliban. And so that kind of spoke for itself in terms of, you know, what was behind curtain A, an intensification of economic pressure, of political isolation – which I think he understood. And what we made clear in defining what was behind curtain B in a sense was that this wasn't about regime change, but it was about fundamental measurable changes in behavior. And that's what we insisted on.
0: What do we need to start doing differently to engage with a world with much more empowered non-state actors, Mm -hmm. be they benign or malign? How do we have to think about that much more complicated and much more decentralized world.
3: Right. Um, Yeah, and that's a place where the State Department, like lots of institutions and the American government need to adapt to a different kind of world. That doesn't mean that states and governments don't matter. Of course they do, particularly in the Middle East in some ways. It doesn't mean that the basic tools of effective diplomats don't matter because to navigate the complicated world of the middle east you need language facility you need an understanding of history you need an understanding of the societies that you're you know trying to understand report on navigate in the pursuit of american interests as well but on top of that then i think you also need a facility and understanding how you can mobilize different governments against you know particularly malign non-state actors whether it was in the case of isis and the California that it established and then building a genuine regional international coalition against that. All the different tools that you need to apply, some in social media, which you've never done particularly well as a government, in sort of the conflict of ideas. Some of it is in terrorism, finance and being able to identify and then block, the movement of funds to different groups. Some of it is addressing those core dysfunctions as well, you know, out of which extremist groups in the Sunni Arab world or outside it all too easily emerge. And I think we tend historically, both in the State Department and more widely in the U.S. government to be blind, you know, or not to give high enough priority to some of those you know, deeper dysfunctions that, you know, unless they're addressed and unless you're honest with leaderships about your concerns about that, you know, what happens is those societies become brittle and break. So there's always an argument given all the other things that we have on an agenda with a complicated authoritarian country, counterterrorism, cooperation, or this or that, to put some of those issues of, you know, human dignity of economic and political opportunity very low on the list. And the argument is that that would just complicate all of these other priorities. And to some extent, it does. But the problem is I always think that's an investment in a healthier society and a healthier relationship over time, in more reliable partners over time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen oftentimes at the pace that Americans would like to see. But steadily pushing in that direction, I think, is a a mark of smart, longer-term diplomacy.
0: Thanks very much for your time today. I appreciate it.
3: My pleasure, John. It's great to be with you.
1: Next up, we connect this conversation with what's happening today.
0: So guys, what'd you think?
1: I thought the most interesting thing that Ambassador Burns said was that the United States should engage more selectively in the Middle East. And I think that's something we're already seeing under this administration. And one of the consequences of this is that regional powers are starting to act more unilaterally to secure their own interests. We've seen a recent spike in tensions between Israel and Iran. And as we know, there's been a lot of increased tension between the United States and Iran as well. Israel has increased its strikes on Iranian or Iranian-backed targets in Syria, Iraq, and in Lebanon in the recent weeks. I feel like a lot's been happening there. Um, Will, can you kind of give us a breakdown?
2: Sure. So in some ways, this isn't new. I think Israeli-Iranian tensions um, have been going on for years, and there have been hundreds of Israeli strikes against Iranian assets and its partners in, in Syria during the conflict. But what is new is is that this campaign is broadening now. So we've seen strikes on uh, in in Iraq since mid-July. And these have been attributed to to Israel, and then more recently, in in towards the end of August, we saw strikes on positions in Lebanon, um, the first Israeli strikes in Lebanon for years. So just one week in August saw Israeli strikes in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. That's a lot. That is a lot.
0: It's hard to figure out the extent to which this is being driven by the Israeli political calendar, with elections coming September seventeenth and Prime Minister Netanyahu in the fight of his life and needing to show that he is tough for a country that really wants him to be tough against Israel's enemies. The extent to which he's concerned or Prime Minister Netanyahu is concerned about the possibility that the US and Iran might talk and he feels that Iran is still a threat. The last thing he wants is for the United States to be making deals with Iran and it feels like a little bit like the Prime Minister is trying to head off that possibility. And there's a legitimate national security concern that Israeli military officials think a lot about how do they deter Iran and they feel a need you have to deter Iran and its proxies or they will act against Israeli citizens.
1: I think deterrence is all well and good, but with this type of escalation, you can really see how someone could misstep. I mean, I think it's a concern we've had about the tensions between, again, the United States and Iran. But With all these strikes, I'm really concerned what's going to happen if Israel misreads or Iran misreads the signal.
2: And we saw the first bit of retaliation in very early September. So on September the first, Hezbollah had promised that it was going to retaliate after the Israeli strikes, and they did. They fired rockets into northern Israel, and then Israel uh, responded by firing uh, rockets into into southern Lebanon. And so that was the first exchange of fire across the Israeli-Lebanese border since Hezbollah and Israel fought the the month-long war in in two thousand and six. So I think this is this is a significant. Escalation.
0: But at the same time, I, I get a sense of caution that Israelis understand what a war would look like for citizens all over Israel, not just in the north, as as the range of Hezbollah's missiles and rockets has increased along with their accuracy. I think we've also realized that, that Hezbollah realizes just how costly a war would be. In a way, when I've been in Lebanon and spoken to people and when I've been in Israel and spoken to people, it feels like everybody feels a war is inevitable. Nobody feels a war is helpful right now. Whether that gets us through the winter, the spring and beyond, or whether we have a mistake, a miscalculation that provokes it, is unclear. My instinct is that we're not currently on the brink of war. My instinct is everybody's trying to exercise some caution, yelling a lot, but being cautious not to invite a war now because of a sense that not only would a war be costly, but a war might better be fought later rather than now.
1: But we still see Iran kind of taking these steps forward, you know, as it tends to do through supporting its proxies or through ratcheting up tensions. So there are recent reports that Iran is building a really large, base in eastern Syria that could house, well, I think you told me about this, thousands of fighters. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Iran is definitely continuing to invest in its proxies and and partners in Syria, in Iraq, and in Lebanon. But this could be related to their negotiating strategy. I think
0: Iran is very conscious of the weakness. On the one hand, they want to start things they can trade away. And on the other hand, when they're negotiating, they want to be negotiating where they have leverage, rather than from position of weakness, a lot of what I've been seeing out of Iran in recent weeks feels to me not like Iran leading away from negotiations but Iran signaling that they're leading away from negotiations in order to lean into negotiations from a stronger negotiating strategy. The danger is that the Iranians will do what they seem to do not infrequently – which is they trip up their own negotiating strategy because they're spending so much time increasing their leverage, they actually make it either less possible or less attractive to make precisely the deal the Iranians need to make.
1: Doesn't that help Israel out, though?
0: If that's the way it plays out, it does. But this could play out in any number of ways.
1: Is the Iran-Israel war starting?
2: No. I mean, I think we'll see more of this, right? I think Israel now feels it has the freedom to, to operate more broadly across the region. And I think it's shown it's prepared to do so and will continue to do so when it, when it feels uh, threatened. But whether that means that some kind of more hot war between them breaks out, I, I think I agree with John. I, I think that we're a way off from that.
1: All right. I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much. Up next, a meze about Russian gold.
4: Russian gold rescues Jordanian women from spinsterhood. That's a 2017 headline from Al Arab, an Arabic-language media outlet. The price of the required dowry of jewelry, or the shebka, is rising beyond the reach of many young men in the Middle East. Couples are turning to gilded copper, also known as Russian gold, to allow weddings to proceed while keeping up appearances.
2: You can't tell the difference between real gold and Russian gold. You can buy a few pieces of gold and mix it with Russian gold, and you can't tell the difference at all.
4: You've seen it before. It's the kind of gold-plated jewelry that tarnishes after just a few wears. Years ago, people in Egypt, Jordan and Palestine were alarmed by Russian gold. They saw it as a trick to hoodwink brides into marriage without securing the wealth that would cushion them in case of divorce. Now, Russian gold helps solve a problem. A shebka's value fluctuates based on the economic status of each couple, but the typical set includes one to two ounces of gold and costs a couple thousand dollars. In Egypt, where the average monthly income is 3,000 Egyptian pounds, or about $167, the shebka is a big investment. Those who had been saving for years were especially hard hit by a currency devaluation, which caused the price of an ounce of gold to surge from 9,150 Egyptian pounds in 2015 to 22,000 Egyptian pounds in 2018. That meant that the value of Egypt's currency was more than halved in just a few years. While the price more than doubled for Egyptians, the price of gold didn't go up significantly for Americans or for residents of any other country. Stories of engagements called off due to wedding costs have sparked campaigns to end the Shebka requirement
1: altogether. Sala and Dunya will get married without a bride price or dowry. This is something that a number of social media campaigns have been calling for, given the economic circumstances that the country is experiencing, which observers describe as unstable.
4: Other alternatives have been floated too. Renting jewelry for the party, replacing gold with less pricey silver, encouraging cash, or allowing more modest gifts. Resistance to this custom is not merely coming from poor young men and their families. Many well to do couples have decided that their money is better spent elsewhere, and religious scholars have
1: emphasized that there is no Islamic precedent for extravagant shebkas. Let me tell you something if I love him, then I don't want anything from him, but for sure, my dad will not be happy. But me? I won't demand anything from him.
4: Nonetheless, amidst a whirlwind of social and economic change, what endures is tradition, or at least an imitation of it.
0: Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.